innovative, often duplicated. When enough people get on the trend, I elevate it. Make it way harder for them to follow what I take. It hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged in your trachea. Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up. So just take your stuff, rake it up, and take the bus. Never fake the funk, you painted skunks. You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space, so the weight is up. Fight. WHUPLP Hillsboro, North Carolina, the center of the known world. This is the Cage Side Concussion Cast on WHUP. I am Jeff Shaw. Trevor Hayes will call in in just a moment to talk to us about a local fighter winning a championship at 145 pounds in Ohio. Our featured guest this week is Valerie Worthington. Valerie is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt and the author of the new book, Training Wheels, How a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Road Trip Jumpstarted My Search for a Fulfilling Life. It's a terrific book. It's the best jiu-jitsu travelogue that I've read, and I think I've read them all. Very excited to talk to Valerie about her book, about her training, about her teaching, about her jiu-jitsu career, and more things. We'll get to all that right after our news segment. Uh, which we will start off by telling you some of the new things that are going on in jiu-jitsu. But first, got to tell you how to get a hold of us. If you're on Facebook, we are at Cage Side Radio. We'll be posting photos from the interview as well as how you can get the book, which I do recommend. Um, we are on Twitter and Instagram at Cage Side Whoop. That's Cage Side W-H-U-P. You can also always email the show at CagesideWHUP at gmail.com. So we'll be talking to Trevor Hayes in a bit about mixed martial arts. Before we get into mixed martial arts, I want to tell you some of the new Brazilian jiu-jitsu things that are the the new happenings in the jiu-jitsu world in the Carolinas and beyond. Uh, John Bagels Telford, friend of the show and beastly brown belt at Forged Fitness, competed at the Chicago Open in the Gi yesterday. He got a bronze medal, which I know didn't satisfy Bagels, but would satisfy any other human being, or maybe not any other human being, but a terrific achievement anyway. So congratulations to John. He competes no Gi today. I also want to mention Austin Snyder got a bronze medal at Blue Belt, and Matt Moretz at Brown Belt returned to competition after a frustrating series of injuries over the last couple of years. Really proud of all those guys, so congratulations. And with that, we have one other major happening that we want to talk about with our friend Trevor Hayes, who hopefully is on the phone with us right now. How are you, Trevor? I am quite good. I'm trying to find a spot that I can get some service right here. Can you hear me? I can hear you just perfectly. We're really excited to talk to you about the 145-pound uh, title at uh, Iron Fights in Ohio. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Iron Fights, IT Fights, something like that. I can't remember the name. We're just there to smash faces and look pretty. So. <laughs> and you do so oh so well. So you... Oh, yeah. We were real pretty that night. <laughs> you, you, I always think so. So, so you had one fighter competing, uh, who, who you cornered, and who was that fighter? And tell us what happened. Um, that was Adley Edwards. He came into the gym. Um, I want to say just over three months ago, we started working together. He moved here from Ohio, and um, you know, he, we kind of clicked right off the bat. He's a former college wrestler. He's uh, fairly experienced. Um, he uh, took he had about a year off between fights, um, and so going to this fight, we weren't trying to do anything special or anything that was outside of his um you know his natural habit just cleaned a few things up cleaned his guard up uh well i say guard like you know as far as like his boxing guard keeping his shoulders rolled hands tight um and sharpening his punches and he fought a guy uh who was another college wrestler um it's ohio everyone's a college wrestler out here it's insane there's so much cauliflower here it's ridiculous um and uh Still there? Yeah. Oh, I, no. That's just a fact. Okay. Yeah, that's just a fact. Yeah, Everyone in Ohio wrestles. So much I thought I heard my phone click out, yeah. Um, yeah, God, cauliflower, you're everywhere. Um, and, um, 
Yeah, we had a, we had a great game plan going into this fight. You know, he fought a kid. Uh, he was like the the local guy. He was six and zero. Um, had beat some of Adley's teammates before, and so Adley was really excited for this fight. Um, and all we did was uh, just staying tight. Like this guy uh, constantly fought with his hands down. You know, he kind of lunge in for stuff. So we kept Adley firing down the middle. Um, what, one thing with uh, people when they're fighting, they're constantly looking at that takedown. If they're constantly getting cracked on the way in, and then the other person is constantly stepping back and making angles, it kind of frustrates a wrestler and makes them shut down a little bit. And that's exactly what happened, you know. Um, Speaking as a former Adley wrestler who doesn't like sleep. getting punched in the face, uh, I can absolutely testify to that. It really, it really sucks getting punched that, in the face. <laughs> well, it wasn't just that. It was just that Adley's punches. You could just hear the, the, the snap on his punches just touching the guy's face across the venue. And I was like, oh, no. It's about to be real bad for this other guy. And the guy's face came out all lumpy, and Adley's face came out perfect. And uh, Adley came out with a belt, so we're really happy. So was it primarily a striking battle, and was it a decision? It was a unanimous decision, um, and it was primarily fought on the feet. Um, the guy did take Adley down off of a overzealous switch kick from Adley. Um, the guy briefly had a body triangle, but then Adley just got to his feet. No, actually, I take it back. Adley reversed and finished on top in the first round. Um, and then the second and third round, um, Adley stuffed the guy's takedowns. Uh, the guy tried to put, or, yeah, Adley stuffed his opponent's takedowns. The guy tried to put Adley in a cage. Adley threw knees, broke off, and struck. Just really good, clean technique. And I even told Adley, you know, don't look for the knockout. Just, just pick this guy apart and um, shut him down and frustrate him. And that's exactly what we did. I mean, at one point, um, the guy swung and literally hit air. Because Adley just kind of slipped, cut, fired out, and touched the guy. And at that point, the guy kind of just broke a little bit. Um, it was just textbook. You know, I was really happy. There was nothing too fancy. It was just good, solid fundamentals that we worked on for the fight, and that's what won the fight. So it must imagine feel- how that works, right? Fundament- <laughs> fundamentals win. Fully. So it must feel really good both to have the game plan go exactly how you drew it up and to be bringing the belt back to Forged Fitness in Cary, North Carolina. Oh, absolutely. You know, I love it when a plan comes together. Ah. Anytime we can quote Hannibal Smith on the show is a good is a good is a yes, good day. There we go. Well, Trevor, congratulations <laughs> to, to you. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely, I'll be your howling Mad Murdoch today. Uh, congratulations ah, to you, Trevor right. Hayes. Congratulations to Adley Edwards. Really exciting to hear from you, and thanks a lot for taking the time to call in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad to bring that title back, and um, we're looking at getting Adley possibly a title fight in North Carolina, South Carolina, and then might have him go pro after that. You know, we're. Uh, He's got some good skill sets to work off, and we're just getting better from here. So I'll see you guys shortly. Excellent. Congratulations to Adley. Congratulations to Trevor. And we will post details when Adley has his next fight on our Facebook page, which is Cade Side Radio. Have a great day in Ohio. Watch out for those cauliflower guys. Oh, yeah. I'll look out for him. All right. Bye now, Jeff. Bye, Trevor. So congratulations again to Trevor and Adley. That's really exciting news. Uh, They've been working hard for that, and it's always nice to see hard work pay off and get the result that you want. We're going to finish up the news segment with a couple of upcoming events that will segue into our featured interview with Valerie Worthington. I want to remind everybody, September 10th is Toro Cup. Toro Cup, for those of you that don't know, is a local super fight card of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, primarily for charity. This time, 50% of the proceeds are going to go to the Terra Ray Kids Project, which teaches jiu-jitsu in the favelas of Brazil. CJ Murdoch, a black belt and Toro BJJ-sponsored fighter, has hooked us up with a connection. Really excited to support that, and I've seen the card, uh, which is going to be an outstanding, outstanding card. Uh, some of the matches we've announced exclusively on the show. Uh, We're going to continue talking about Toro Cup, but I just want everyone to get on the calendar September 10th. It's going to be a great event for a great cause. 
On September 17th, there's two events I want to tell you about. First is a Roy Marsh seminar at Tri- at uh, Hoist Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Goldsboro, North Carolina. If you've heard Roy, Roy on the show, you know that he's a very technical, skilled black belt who has a passion for Jiu-Jitsu and the ability to explain techniques, both small and large. It's going to be a great event. If you're anywhere near Goldsboro, I absolutely recommend that. And if you if you uh, need more convincing, go back and listen to Roy's interview in the archive, and I think that you'll understand why you want to learn Jiu-Jitsu from this person. Another person that is excellent to learn jiu-jitsu from, as well as other matters about life, is my guest, Valerie Worthington. And on that same day, September 17th, Valerie will be holding an open mat discussion and book signing at Revolution BJJ in Richmond, Virginia, with uh, our friend Andrew Smith. So that's September 17th as well. So if you listen to the interview and you want to get Val to sign uh, to sign your book, you can check that out, get in some great training, and learn a bunch of, about jiu-jitsu along the way. And if you're in the market to learn a bunch about jiu-jitsu, you're going to want to hang around for the next 15 seconds. On the other side of this break, we will talk with my guest, Valerie Worthington. Jiu-jitsu is part of the solution. Jiu-jitsu saves lives. <laughs> it's the Cape Side Concussion Cast on WHUPFN.org. Valerie, thank you so much for coming into the studio today. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So one thing that uh, I already I already mentioned, I really, really enjoyed the book. I thought that the way that you wove in anecdotes from your jiu-jitsu road trip along with higher concepts about learning in jiu-jitsu and in life was really effective in terms of like uh, of, of conveying certain messages. One thing that I noticed about the book that I wanted to ask you about, there's a lot of detail. In, in a lot of these anecdotes. Did you always know that you wanted to write about this experience? Was it something that you were documenting at the time or or was it an idea that came about later? I, I didn't always know that I wanted to write a book, but I knew that I wanted to capture what I was experiencing because even at the height of this trip that I took where I quit a job and sold my home and drove around the country training jujitsu, even though I didn't know from day to day exactly what the heck I was doing, I knew that it was kind of a singular experience in my life and I wanted to capture that. So this was in 2006. It was when blogs were starting to become popular. And so I decided that I would maintain a blog. So a lot of the source material that I have, a lot of the um, the information that, that found its way into the book in some form or fashion started out as entries in my, in my online journal, basically. Um, and I think I knew that there was a there there, if that makes sense, when people started to read the blog and I started to get emails from people, both people who train and people who don't, saying, where are you now? What are you doing? And what I realized was that what I was experiencing, the fear and the excitement and all of this, it, it resonated with people who do jujitsu because it was focused on jujitsu type activities, but it also resonated with people who didn't because it focused on the kinds of questions that everybody asks in their lives. What am I doing with my life? Where am I going next? Um, What's important to me? Those kinds of things. So I knew that I wanted to capture what I was experiencing, but I didn't necessarily know that it would turn into a book until much later. Sure. And so for those who haven't read the book or haven't read the blurb that we posted on the website, um, you uh, you had a career path where you were promoted to a very intense job, you know, lucrative salary, and decided this isn't making me happy. I'm just going to go on the road and, and train jujitsu. And it, the crux of the book, uh, it, 
you know, this is a core sentence that you describe, which is, or a core paragraph. At this point, jujitsu was the only thing in my unsatisfying life that was not. So I followed the breadcrumb trail it created for me, hoping it would lead me towards something more fulfilling. My jujitsu journey changed me forever and mostly for the better, thanks to my fair share of luck, support from my friends and family, and more fear and innocence lost than I wanted. Though who wants any of that? Does that still ring true to you? Oh yeah, it's and it's funny to hear those words read back to me. I, I once I once I uh, published the book, I haven't really read it <laughs> again, um, but uh, it, it absolutely still does. It it jujitsu was my was the tool that I was able to use to kind of pry myself out of a life that didn't work for me. Um, and other people have other things that they can use, but uh, but for me, it was um, it was definitely something that highlighted for me the times in my life the 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 moments in my life when i was feeling alive and I w- when i was experiencing joy and the times and the moments in my life when i wasn't so for me i don't necessarily recommend that everybody do what i did but i had gotten to a point in my life where i needed to i needed to to make a grand gesture and and jujitsu was one of the one of the tool the main tools that i used to to make that happen one of the things you mentioned was that this book has resonated both with people who train jujitsu and people who don't. And I noticed in the book, you do a very good job of explaining the sometimes arcane culture and practice of Brazilian jujitsu to folks that may not train, which leads me to the question, who, what audience were you writing for? Did you have an audience in mind or were you, were you more of the opinion, this is something I'm doing for myself to express who I am and whoever it resonates with, that's fine. That's a really good question, and I think it changed from day to day and moment to moment. And I, I think that um, as I was writing, and and again, this is this is a um, based on the fact that I did get interest from people who don't train. I was hoping that I would be able to represent jujitsu effectively and accurately enough so that the purists and those of us who spend our lives doing it would would find it acceptable. Um, and and maybe even that it would resonate with them. And yes, this is the feeling that I have when I do jujitsu. And this is and 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 you've been able to articulate something that I feel. But on the other hand, I was hoping that um, with kind of the bigger picture of this jujitsu is the way that I experience these emotions. But these emotions and these these feelings are part of the human condition. I was hoping that with the bigger picture explanation that I would that I, that it would resonate with other with people who don't do jujitsu as well, and so I think I was trying to strike that balance the entire time, sometimes without knowing it. Sure, and I, I think it succeeds like in in trying to strike that balance because a lot of the themes in the book or or the 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 things that you touch on are things that are universal to the human experience. One of which we talked about at the open mat uh, and book signing at, at the Pendergrass Academy of Martial Arts yesterday, which is imposter syndrome, and it can seem from an external observer. You know, you, you always think about highly accomplished and effective people, people with PhDs, people who have won major competitions and think, oh, well, you know, what, why would that person, you know, the, objectively that person is an incredibly impressive person. And yet imposter syndrome seems to be something high level jujitsu people feel and people in other aspects of life. It seems like everyone struggles with that. Is it, would, would you think that's fair to say? I do. And I actually learned the term imposter syndrome from my parents. Um, they are both retired psychologists, arguably very accomplished, um, very intelligent. I know I'm biased, but uh, but they, they were good at what they did. My father, and I don't think he'd mind me using this example, um, he was a college professor for many years. He um, helped to raise the the profile of the program that he worked in. Um, and and now the program is, is very well respected. Um, and, and it was in large part due to the work that he did. 
So he is now 81 years old and feisty as ever, but he told me when I was in graduate school and experiencing imposter syndrome in my academic background, he he told me a story that made me feel better and worse at the same time, which was that even he's got a PhD, he got his PhD in the 60s, and he still to this day, not as often, but he still to this day has dreams every now and then where people from his university will knock on the door and say, I'm sorry, Mr. Worthington, we've made a terrible mistake. We have to take your doctorate back from you. And because you you didn't live up to the expectations that we had of you. And the reason that I that I mentioned this story is not to call out my father, but but he was very kind in sharing that example with me. But to say that I think I think it is. It's rampant. And um, imposter syndrome is rampant. And I, I look at my father and I think he's got no reason to feel anything but confident and 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 proud of what he's accomplished. But I think that it comes from precisely that that accomplishment and the pride in, in the work that people take. If you're the kind of person who wants to do well and wants to leave a legacy of quality and of of joy and of of being a good force, a force for good in the world, I think that you're going to be worried about how you're coming across. If you want to represent jujitsu in the best possible light, you, you're going to wonder, am I, am I technically sound enough? Am I a good leader? Am I a good teacher? And so it's precisely the things that the qualities that people have that enable them to accomplish things that are going to make them wonder if they're accomplishing enough. Yeah, it's such a paradox, right? The, you know, the, the things that make you successful, your critical thinking, your self-analysis and examination are the very things that in many ways drive this imposter syndrome. And I guess the good news is even the really accomplished people have it and it never goes away. But the bad news is also even the, you know, the really accomplished people have it and it never goes away. Absolutely. Well, there's an anecdote in the book that that um, I think speaks to this a bit is your conversation with your coworker that you call Joe. It's just not his real name. And it, I would I don't know if, if it, no, if it's even fair to call it a conversation. It's more of a confrontation where after you turn down this promotion and you decide you're going to take your life in a different direction and go train jujitsu, he actually becomes pretty aggressive towards you about how how could you possibly do this? Mm-hmm. And how so? I'm curious about whether you could describe that event for the listeners and talk about you know, how that plays into expectation that people have about their own career and how they project that onto others. Sure, sure. So when I left, when I decided that I that I uh, needed to make a big change in my life, I had I unexpectedly been promoted. So I was trying to extricate, extricate myself from my, from my employment situation, and I kind of got sucked in further. Because when you're promoted, you take the promotion. You don't you don't not take a promotion. Um, and what happened with me was that the promotion turned out to be a terrible fit for me. I would go into my office every day for about a month, which is about as long as I lasted, and I would cry for about 10, between 10 and 10 minutes and, and an hour even. Then I'd pull myself together and I'd get on with my day. And I kind of knew <laughs> that I couldn't I couldn't live that way. So I ended up deciding that I was going to quit the promotion and slowly remove myself from this job and figure out what I was going to do. But I knew that I couldn't do this job. And Joe, the um, the coworker, came in after after word had gotten around that I quit the promotion and that I was planning to, to do something different. And as you say, he got very aggressive. He got He got agitated. So he was upset with me because I had quit the promotion. And he said, 
you know, you you think you deserve more from from life. Basically, the implication was you think you deserve more from life, but all of us, everybody else is doing what they're supposed to be doing. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be doing what's expected of you, and you're doing something different. And bear in mind, I my interactions with Joe were sort of ancillary at most. I, I you know, crossed his path periodically, but the the fact that I was quitting the promotion wasn't going to have a material effect on his day-to-day, any of his supervisees, any of that. But what I realized was that he, I, I wasn't doing this, I truly in my mind wasn't doing this, but he had taken my action as a judgment on his actions. And since I had done something different, I was I was negatively judging what he was choosing to do, which was to stay in this path that I had decided to divert from. And I didn't realize it at the time. All I knew was that I was getting a lot of really intense emotion headed my way. And I didn't, I, and it, it made me wonder if I had made a mistake. Should I have stayed in the job? Maybe he was right. And with a little bit of distance and a little bit of perspective, I realized that I think it's, it's human nature for people to look around at what other people are doing and compare themselves. Maybe we don't want to, but... Man, I can remember conversations that I had with friends about, are you going to go to our college reunion? Are you going to go to our high school reunion? You know, oh, I have this wedding to go to. And mixed in with the potential excitement is a little bit of, okay, how am I going to measure up to where I'm supposed to be? And I'm making the, qu- the quote marks which with my fingers, which I, you know, the air quotes. Um, so I'll never do that again, I promise. But, uh, but how am I measuring up in my own mind? How am I going to measure up in other people's minds to this kind of external, ethereal yardstick that we kind of all have, but none of us can ever really hit? We can never really hit that mark because we don't know exactly what that mark is. And I think that's a, a, very, a, a very lucid thing about not just our experience in jiu-jitsu, but our experience in life broadly about conforming to other people's expectations and, and, and you know, the ability to make oneself happy first. And this is why I think both readers that train and readers that don't train are going to enjoy the book. Um, so yesterday, Valerie had an open mat, mini seminar, book signing at Pendergrass Academy of Martial Arts, wherein you read an excerpt from this book. There are many things in the book that you cover about issues of jiu-jitsu that I want to drill down into, your experience as a woman and a purple belt when both of those things were pretty rare in the mid-2000s traveling across North, or across, across the country, not just North Carolina, although North Carolina is part of the country. <laughs> but before we get into that, I'm going to let the listeners hear something that you read from the, uh, uh, you know, one of the, one of the really core passages passages in the book, uh, which you read at Pendergrass. And then uh, we're going we're gonna to listen to that excerpt now, and then we can drill down into some of the, some of the material after this. I'm going to read it, uh, a part that describes how I feel when I'm training. Okay? When I'm training, I'm in my own body, in my own mind, and I have no interest in being anywhere else. It does not even occur to me that there's anywhere else to be. I'm simultaneously present and omnipresent, focused completely on the task at hand, and meta-aware of that focus. It sounds highfalutin, but it just means I'm at peace, in a place where I do not see a distinction between myself and the rest of the physical world. When we are at our best together, BJJ takes me to the flow state, where I am present in my body and mind. During training, there is no worry and no indulging in my favorite hobby, beating myself up for real or imagined shortcomings. There is only encountering another person's energy, putting together a plan of attack and a logical defense, and adjusting and readjusting, split second after split second. 
Grappling is sometimes called a game of inches, and with good reason, because in countless training and competition scenarios, less than that, a, hair, a hair's breadth even, can mean the difference between things like base and instability, tolerable discomfort and physical injury, consciousness and sleep. Unless I'm burned out, sick, or feeling stressed, I experience some flow in pretty much every BJJ class. In other words, under normal circumstances, I always become engrossed, lose track of time, and spend the duration of class with either a furrowed brow, signifying concentration, or a dumb, slightly slack-jawed smile on my face, signifying contentment, or both. When the children of some friends of mine were toddlers, they would spend minutes on end totally immersed in important tasks, such as carefully pulling all the toilet paper off the roll until they hit cardboard, with the paper itself ending up in an untidy, unusable pile on the bathroom floor. If anyone tried to divert their attention, they would either push that person out of the way or, if restrained, throw a big hairy tantrum until they were allowed to get back to it. On the other hand, when Tiger, my childhood cat, was utterly content, she would lie belly down with her paws underneath her, her head in a neutral position, her eyes half closed, her purring mechanism loud, and, over time, her chin wet with drool. She could stay there for hours at a time, chir chirping slightly in affection if I petted her, and then settling back down as I scratched her ears. At different times, in different jiu-jitsu classes, I've borne more than a passing resemblance to both a busy toddler and a happy cat, sometimes both in the same minute. As I have improved at jiu-jitsu, I find the nature of the flow I experience during, during training sessions has changed over the years. In my very first class, and for many beyond that, I was completely pr present because to be or do otherwise would be to fall behind. I had to ask my body to respond to commands that my brain barely understood, and I had to do this in an environment where I did not yet understand the rules of social engagement. Back then, I focused on each component of a technique or interpersonal action, like a drowning woman locking her attention on the oar being extended to her by her rescuer. The twist was that I kind of liked the feeling. I skipped right over the fear to the exhilaration of knowing I was going to make it, and then I kept insisting on getting back in the water. I continue to have this experience, but over time, more room has opened up in my mind to allow a complementary experience of the flow state. It is just as all-encompassing, but as I have become more able to operate my body and my brain as independent entities, I found room for more of the meta-awareness. In these moments, what is striking is what is absent. Fear, despondency, self-hatred. Imagine stripping your conscious awareness of all the negative thoughts and feelings you have in a day and being left with just the good stuff. Joy, love, connectedness, generosity. I know it sounds weird because I'm still trying to squish my partner and my partner is still trying to squish me, but often the sum total of my BJJ experience after a class is, is over seems to contain only benevolence, goodwill, and gratitude. It is heady stuff. So that's my jujitsu. So I think that's a terrific description of the flow state, and which is sort of the ideal state of mind in jujitsu, where the fear is gone, it's just joy and presence in that moment. Uh, how often are you able to achieve that in, mm -hmm. in, in your training? That's a good question, and we talked about that um, a little bit yesterday. And I'm, I'm frequently able to lose track of time, but for me, the flow state is also, um, it encompasses this, this sense that I can do no wrong or that I, I'm able to anticipate, I'm able to uh, counter, I'm able to do all of these things without having to think about them or without having to take that split second of, of questioning. So... The, the engrossedness happens very frequently. The flow happens not nearly as frequently. And we talked about that a little bit about how, um, and, and I, I haven't done nearly as much reading as I should on, um, on, on how that manifests itself in sports as well, because the, the little bit of reading that I have done talks about flow, um, refer, refers to it as the zone, which I'm sure all of us have heard about too. And so the zone implies... Um, 
effectiveness in what you're doing. So it isn't just a presence, it's an ability to take that presence and to and to capitalize it on it in a way that that helps you re- reach your goal. So that aspect of it is always elusive. <laughs> sometimes I get it for 30 seconds at a time, sometimes even a minute at a time. Um, but uh, but it's, it's, it's really tantalizing and uh, I'm always kind of looking for it. Most definitely. Most definitely. I think we're all kind of looking for it. And it is, as you say, fleeting sometimes. So uh, I, I want to I take two different angles with this. Let's start with uh, the book reading at Pendergrass yesterday. Uh, Pendergrass Academy of Martial Arts, thanks to those folks for hosting. Um, was this the f- first of these type of events you've done, or how, how many of these events have you done? It wasn't the first, and I also would like to say thank you to Pendergrass. It was a, it was a great day. Um, the first event that I did was at Heart BJJ, which is in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania, and it's run by um, my friends uh, Tim and Heather Hart. So what happened there was some people who trained there um, read the book, and they said, we want to do a book club with your book. And I said, that sounds fantastic. That sounds like a great idea. I would love to, I would love to do that. Um, and so they talked, to, they talked to Tim and Heather, and they hosted me. And that one, and I can say this now because it went really well. I was so pleased with how it turned out. And, I, I mean, Heather and Tim are fantastic, um, as are all the students they have. But I kind of winged it. I wasn't really sure what was going to happen. Um, but we made it into a very, very jujitsu-type event. So what we did was we came in, we, I introduced myself, we did a little bit of training, I read a passage from the book, and then we opened it up for discussion. And what I started to realize in doing that event was that jiu-jitsu people love to learn jiu-jitsu, they love to train jiu-jitsu, and they love to talk about jiu-jitsu. And we get a lot of opportunity in our formal classes to do the first two. We don't get as much of an opportunity formally to do the third. So it was it was really compelling to me that the book just served as a jumping off point for a larger discussion about jujitsu life and what it means to do jujitsu, how we work through injuries, how we compare ourselves to other people, getting back to imposter syndrome, and and how it how it affects our lives. And so when I hit on that, I realized, okay, that's the formula is that we need to we need to give people an opportunity to talk about this thing that they spend so much time learning and doing. And so the second event that I did was in Detroit at my friend Xander Heinen's place, um, uh, 313 BJJ, which is, which is uh, in Detroit, Michigan. And, and, and that was when I realized, okay, this is, this is the formula and this is the order that it needs to happen. We need to train first. And then we need to talk. And the reason is because jujitsu people get to know each other by putting themselves in each other's physical space. So you and I might train. And then after we're done training, I might say, that was really fun. And by the way, my name is Val. So that's how things work in the jujitsu world. We do things kind of backwards. But once you've established that that physical connection with someone, at least for jujitsu people, then it's easier to establish a more kind of interpersonal, a more typical interpersonal connection where you actually use your words. <laughs> so, so the I so in answer to your question, I've done I did two events before the Pendergrass one. Um, I've got a couple more coming up and I'm really excited about them. And and it was just kind of it was just kind of a, a sense that there was something there, that there was something there that 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 people could benefit from and if I could help with that then I wanted to I really wanted to be a part of it. Yeah, the two elements of your answer that I want to lift up are, first of all, in jiu-jitsu, it really is 
the physical process of knowing someone is as important or at least you know I think at least as important as the prospect of using one's words and that when you get in each other's physical space when you train with someone you learn a little bit about their personality I really believe that their personality that someone's personality is often manifested in how they in how they roll or how they drill and what and 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 such like that and the second thing which segues into my next question is that um we do train a lot without sometimes talking about it as much. And this is why I think some of these events have been so successful is you provide a forum. And I, I think that you have a unique perspective on this question that, that, I, that I struggle with, which is how do you deal with bad days? And the reason I think you're uniquely poised to answer this is everybody has bad days, right? And, like, and we love jujitsu. We train it all the time. It's a central part of our lives. You gave up a huge portion of your life to commit to jujitsu. And so I find, you know, even, you know, you know jujitsu is a central part of my life as well, but I have bad days. There are days when the core techniques aren't working, when I'm a step slow, when, you know, I'm, I'm frustrated. And so I think part of the danger of investing so much of yourself in this passion that you love is, oh, I'm, I identify strongly as a jujitsu person. This is central to me. I couldn't even sweep that white belt today. What have I done with my life? You know, and so I'm wondering, do you have that experience? I am nodding vigorously. <laughs> so I keep forgetting that you can see me and everybody else can't, but I am vigorously nodding. Oh, man. And Only I matter, Val. <laughs> exactly. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. I, and, and I think that at the beginning of your, ju- of your jujitsu journey, those kinds of days can be even more just devastating because you don't have as many days where you go, oh, I was the hammer today or um, I I hit the things that I wanted to hit. Um, so when you have those days where you 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 just aren't doing well, you look around and you go, "I'm never going to get to I'm never going to get to the next level. It's never going to click for me." And when I was at that level, I think what what pulled me through was simply the fact that I just loved what I was doing. I even though I felt awkward and stupid and crazy and clumsy, I I just loved it. And it reminds me of. Um, an experience I had again in graduate school where I was taking a statistics class. So statistics, at least in my field, which is edu- educational psychology, a lot of people were terrified of statistics. And so I thought to myself, oh, I guess I'm supposed to be afraid of statistics. But I needed to take it from my program. And I remember for the first six weeks thinking, yeah, it's actually right to be afraid of statistics because I don't get it. I would listen to the professor and I would say, I know that they're speaking a language I understand, but I don't understand the words that they're saying. I don't understand the concepts. I don't understand anything. And it wasn't until about six weeks later that all of a sudden everything came together. And I wasn't an expert statistician at that point, but it was almost like I had to have a critical mass of information fed into my brain so that then I could figure out how to how to make sense of it and have a structure for understanding it. And so... When I was a very, very new white belt, I that I think that epiphany happened probably at about six or eight months. So it took a really long time. And for the for the the preceding time, I felt like I wasn't getting anywhere, I wasn't learning anything. As I've progressed further, those feelings don't go away, but I think I have I have more perspective on them because I have more time in, if that makes sense. So you can remind yourself. And and I would even recommend that people do this. Make a list of the times when you felt really good and pull that out and say, okay, today wasn't that great, but I remember this time when I hit this sweep or I remember this time when I anticipated something that I'd never anticipated before um, and give yourself a little bit of credit. 
Another answer to your question, you were asking about how I deal with those kinds of things. I write about them. So I, it, writing is actually a really beautiful thing because you can say something incredibly personal and put it out there and then you can walk away from it. And if I want to read comments, if people have comments, I can. But if I don't want to, I don't have to. Um, and so it can be very cathartic to to write that stuff out. And um, and then I can decide whether or not I want to um, interact with people who may have responses. But when I've done that, when I have had sort of my deepest, darkest moments, those are the times when I've gotten the most support and the most energy that's lifted me up from people who both have empathy and who've also been there. And so I think that, again, it comes back to if you if you talk to people and say, man, I had a really lousy day today, there are going to be people who can who can commiserate with you and who can tell you that it's that it's not lethal. So if you're feeling because when I feel bad about myself, I feel lonely. And so if I reach out and if I make a connection to someone, then at least I don't feel as alone. But chances are, depending on who I choose, I'm also going to get some useful data that's going to help me say, OK, this isn't going to kill me. And it's also not it's also not just me. This is something all of us go through when we try to get better at this. Part of the reason that I think that advice is so valuable is that there were probably 30, 35 people at the Pendergrass event yesterday, and when we talked about some of these issues, there were so many nods around the room from all belt levels. We had black belts to white belts, and, and you know stuff that that you know you think it's just you that thinks you're never going to get your blue belt, or oh, I'm I'm always going to get smashed, uh, but but it's not. And I think it is important to like to talk more about that sort of experience because this can be a hard thing. And one anecdote from the book that that I wanted to to ask you about is your first experience with your first instructor Julian where you you're, you're training and you start to get as many people do claustrophobic mm-hmm. in the gi and the gi covers your face and you express that and Julian responds with a little bit of laughter and says well you might be in the wrong place and proceeds to cover your, your face with your gi again mm-hmm. so one thing that I I believe in jujitsu as a as a tool of personal development like I feel like I'm a much tougher person than I would be had I not trained at the same time there's a line and uh, how, uh, open-ended, difficult question. How do you know where the line is between tough training and dangerous training or abuse? Mm-hmm. And I'm nodding vigorously again, and I think I think the line is different for every person. Um, what I have tried to do as, um, as an instructor is emphasize, as, as much as I emphasize tech, proper technique and um, etiquette and strategy and those kinds of things, I also emphasize self-knowledge. And um, the way that I've described it is uh, to own your training. So in a situation like what happened with Julian, that's pretty difficult because there's so many stimuli coming at you. And fortunately, in, this, in that case, it worked. What he did worked for me. It was, okay, you know what, just, just chill out, just relax, breathe, keep moving, breathe, keep moving. And that worked for me. But, but if it hadn't worked, then... It would need to be okay in that context for me as a human being to say, you know what, I'm not okay with this. And to get to get away from the fact that I'm a white belt and he's and he outranked me and to say, I'm not comfortable with this. I need to be able to learn in a different way. And that's something that is, again, a difficult line because as a white belt, I don't want to disrespect my brown belt, my black belt instructor. But as a human being, I don't want to be disrespected in a way that makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't want my boundaries violated. So this, again, I think is another conversation that needs to happen uh, multiple times in multiple places. And everybody needs to kind of figure out what their line is and align that also with 
the the understandable expectation that on the mat the person who's your instructor is the person who's in charge so that doesn't mean that doesn't give that person license to abuse you or or injure you in any way but it does it does mean that that person has more experience in towing that line um and so there may be something to learn from trying to put yourself outside your own comfort zone I, so I'm answering your question by raising more questions because I really do think that this is this is an area that um, that is important for everybody to talk about and for everybody from white belt to, to black belt and red belt to be aware of that my line is going to be different from somebody else's line and it has to be okay for me to to have that line and to be able to articulate it and to have a conversation with my coach about why and to and to reach some kind of shared understanding. One of the hallmarks of an interesting question is there is no easy and pat answer Mm. to things like this, right? And another anecdote you talk about in the book, which serves as a bridge to some other things I want to talk about, is when you're traveling and you you run into a gym of of a a, – which is – the teacher is someone you call Jeff in the book, which I appreciate. Uh, (laughs) But but in this anecdote, you sort of use a concept from Gavin DeBecker's book, The Gift of Fear, to to get across the idea that one should trust one's gut. And without getting into the full detail of the story – you, you, as a purple belt, go into someone else's gym who is a blue belt instructor, and something happens during the training, during the competition training, that makes you uncomfortable. Not that it happened to you, but that they're, they're training really hard on a guy who I believe has asthma. Mm-hmm. And and, at some, and I, I should just let you describe your, your feelings and like, like, because, you know, you describe it in the book. But I want to hear you talk about, like, your feelings when, when watching that and why you reacted the way you did and what lessons you took from that. Sure. I, I – uh we, I visited an academy. It was run by it was run by a blue belt, a man, um, and he that their academy was under the aegis of a black belt who lived elsewhere. So that black belt came to visit periodically. The blue belt instructor went to visit periodically, and so that was how they maintained their connection and how they had um, a good curriculum. I hadn't expected at the time I was traveling. I was a purple belt, and I hadn't ever expected that I would outrank the instructor. So that in itself was sort of an interesting situation and and I made a very conscious decision while I was in the in the um, dressing room to kind of cede authority to him because it wasn't my gym and I think he didn't know what to do either because I outranked him but I was a guest and so how does this happen so I just went up to him and shook his hand and said I'm really looking forward to taking your class and then everybody sort of went okay now we know where the totem pole who's who's where on the totem pole so what happened in the class was um I'm sure many of your listeners will know the the game King of the Hill, where there are, there are several pairs on the mat who are training, um, and usually it's uh, um, you have to the the person who's on the top has to pass, the person who's on the bottom has to sweep, or there has to be some kind of um, some kind of points earned, and then the person who loses goes out, and the other and another person comes in, so they keep feeding the line. Um, and what happened in this King of the Hill was that uh, um, there were two people who were compete, getting ready for a competition, two white belt men. And whether they won or lost, whether they got their guard passed or whether they got swept, um, they stayed in because the idea was to sort of build them up um, and help them work on their conditioning and their, and their mental toughness. And what started to happen was with one of the, one of the guys, uh, he started to have labored breathing. And he um, made a gesture with his arm where he kind of put his hand out in, in a, a stop motion when his next partner came to engage with him. And he said, you know, I'm starting to be able be unable to breathe. Um, and 
I turned to the person next to me in line and said, what's going on here? And it turned out that the that, that guy had uh, exercise-induced asthma and that it was starting to, to, um, to flare up. So... We he went a couple more, you know, a couple more minutes and his coach was saying, you know, just suck it up and breathe through it, blah, blah, blah. And he started to look really, really bad. Like he couldn't breathe and was just, you know, not moving very much. And the the coach, this blue belt, kept yelling at him until he saw me looking. And I apparently don't have a great poker face because I was really worried for this guy. He really looked like he was in in some kind of physical danger, like he could not breathe. And as someone who experiences claustrophobia, which we just went over, I I was was really concerned for him. So the coach saw me, saw my the expression on my face, and it must have conveyed something that, you know, was was a little concerning to him because he stopped the training and he said, Okay, everybody go get a drink of water and then um uh, said to the the student that he could go get his inhaler, and then tried to explain to me what was happening. You know, he's kind of you know he's kind of soft, and we're trying to toughen him up and things like this. And and I was really really shaken. Um, I'd never seen someone. I'd seen coaches push people to you know limits that were beyond their comfort zone, but I'd never seen a coach push push somebody to a place that I considered to be dangerous. And and that was that was just a real jarring experience for me. Um, and so that's when I went into this whole idea of um, talking about Gavin De Becker's book, The Gift of Fear, and what I was feeling at the time, and how my my feeling, my gut reaction was get out of there. But my social training was you don't leave when it's in the middle of a class, and you don't disrespect the instructor, and you do all the things that are sort of socially acceptable in that context. And so at that day, my, my gut went over, and I said, you know what, I forgot I have to go do something, and I made up some excuse, and I left because I didn't want to train at that place because I didn't feel safe. Um, but but I can I can imagine a situation where I would have stayed and felt extremely uncomfortable and, you know, maybe have seen other things. And I still look back on that and I think to myself, what was my responsibility? Should I have said something? Should I have done something? And I just wasn't I was not prepared to handle that situation. So my first thought was I need to get myself safe. And and then and looking back on it, I, I just, you know, wonder and hope and wish and and uh think about what I could have done differently, if anything. One of the really interesting things about the book is I think your road trip occurred at a really transitional time for jujitsu, where having a blue belt run a school still happens, but it's more rare. There are more women in jujitsu. There are more upper belts. And so a situation like that, it would be more rare these days. Another anecdote from the book that I wanted to discuss, and not not just the anecdote, but the concept, is you have a conversation in the book with the well-respected Denver black belt, Amal Easton, where he says, five years ago, you couldn't have done this road trip. You'd have been called a crayonche, a traitor. And uh, we won't go into the, you know, people that know jiu-jitsu know that term, uh, uh, invented by one of your former instructors, Carlson Gracie Sr., the legend, uh, which basically says, you, you train with your people, not with other people. And so uh, without, without you know, I'm, I hope I'm representing Amal um, um, Easton's point of view correctly, but he said, you know, five years ago, if you'd have tried to do a road trip where you just dropped in at schools, that wouldn't have been possible. And even now in 2007, Six. 2006, it, w- it was pretty dicey. Whereas now that, that sort of practice is more accepted. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the notions of loyalty and as someone that's trained at a few different schools. Do you think the term crayonche was was ever useful? And if it was, is it still? Mm-hmm. I 
It's a good question. I, I think so. I'd like to respond to that by explaining the way that I've always tried to interact with people. I have I have trained at a variety of places, I've been really fortunate to train at a variety of places. And I like to think that I'm still welcome and I'm still um, thought of with fondness at all of those places, regardless of whether I still train there or, tra- or you know don't train there anymore. And the reason I think that this is true, I hope that this is true, is because every time I had to leave a place or every time I chose to leave a place, um, I, I had an, a conversation with the instructor. So I was upfront about what I was doing and why. And frequently, most often, my, my uh, decisions were uh, geographic. I was moving and I was going someplace else. But I tried to, I tried to be as upfront and as honest as possible about um, what I was doing and why. And uh, I think the best example of that, which also kind of touches on this idea of, of what Amal was, was warning me about, was when I left on my road trip, I talked to Carlson Sr. had passed. Um, Carlson Jr. was was still teaching at the Chicago uh, Academy where I had where I had been. And I talked to him about what I wanted to do. And I said, I don't know why I need to do this, but I feel like I need to take a trip. And I, I want to drive around and train at all these places. And, I, and I'm asking for your blessing. And he gave it. And he told me a little bit about his own experiences of, of training and, and um, some of the things that he'd gone through. So for me, it was a really bittersweet and important conversation. But I didn't just say, hey, I'm packing up and leaving. I went and talked to him and tried to explain to him as much as I could about what I was doing and why. And so I didn't even know about the dangers that I might be experiencing or that I might be put opening myself to until I talked to Amal. And I really appreciated his willingness to talk to me about that because I just wasn't even sure of – I. It didn't even occur to me that I was doing anything, quote unquote, wrong or that there was a problem here. Um, And he pointed out to me that it wasn't just about me getting the blessing of my instructor. It was, you know, the, the places that I was going into, they might have problems. But all I could do was was the best that I could do, if that makes sense. So I would try to be. As just as I was upfront and honest with with Carlson Jr., I tried to be upfront and honest with these people whose academies I visited. You know, I'm just driving through, I'm taking a road trip, and then they had the option of letting me train or not. And I don't think I was ever turned away. I think, and I and I was never treated poorly. I was always welcomed. A little bit. People thought that it was a little bit odd because, as you say, back in back in the day, back when I was doing it, there weren't that many people traveling and training, but. I tried to be respectful. I tried to be polite. I tried to demonstrate that I was really there to learn. And and I was able in, in those ways to kind of just fit in because even though there are differences among um, grappling uh, jujitsu academy personalities, there are lots of similarities too. And so I just made sure to, to try to focus on the things that I knew were right to do at that point. So, so I didn't answer your original question about whether Crianchi is a um, – is a, uh, a useful term. I think what's useful is is um, treating people with respect and being upfront with them and trying to be as honest as possible. And that's something that I try to do. I don't always succeed. There's always room for improvement. But particularly in a situation where you are spending so much time with people and they're investing in you, if uh, if there needs to be a change in that kind of relationship, then then be as honest as you can. 
be, be able to look yourself in the mirror after you've made your choice and, and given your explanation and then, you know, try to let it go. We've got a little under 10 minutes left with Valerie Worthington. She's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt and the author of Training Wheels, How a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Road Trip Jump-Started jump My Search for a Fulfilling Life. You're hearing just a few of the great road trip stories that are in this book. Uh, we'll be posting details about how you can get it. Really recommend the book, especially like if, if you're enjoying some of these anecdotes, as well as some of the, the higher-minded concepts about jiu-jitsu and life. In the minutes we have left, I want to talk to you a little bit about Valerie the writer, as well as Valerie the jiu-jitsu practitioner and competitor. And one of the interesting decisions, or one of the things that happened, you end up landing at New Breed in, in California, and what you end up training, up, and one of the people there is Eben Kaneshiro, who, uh, you know, and many in the jiu-jitsu community know, n know this, wound up pro doing some heinous things. And one of the things that I note, there's a, an extensive footnote in the book where you've completed the first draft, where he's like a, a minor character, I would say, like, a, a, and but but someone that you knew and trained with, and then some of these allegations, some of these incidents come out, and I'm interested in your experience with that as a writer, where you make the decision, well, I'm going to leave this in with some explanatory notes, and I'm wondering how you came about making that decision as a writer. Yeah. Um it was so after the first draft, just for a little bit of context, after the first draft, I wrote the first draft, um, the the news broke that Eben had um, been accused of sexually assaulting children. And um, while he was in custody, he committed suicide. And there is I, I make links or I provide links to the stories that I used as my as my fact checking. Um, in these stories. So he was never tried, but he was accused and he um, committed suicide while in custody. So, yeah, it was it was a, a real I, and the way I described it in the way I described it in this footnote that you describe was I had to make a decision about how to represent this person who I had thought was one way and turned out to be another way. And I knew pretty much immediately that I couldn't leave him out because he was a part of my jujitsu journey and it would be dishonest for me to do that. And also cynically, it would be pretty easy for people to do some fact checking of their own. So that's why I decided to do this lengthy footnote, which I hope was, I hope was sensitive to what the real important issues are, which is not any sort of rhetorical decisions I had to make, but the the safety and the well-being of of the the people that Eben was accused of hurting and i that was another reason that i wanted to keep mention of him in the book because i don't th i unfortunately his story is not unique there are other people in the jiu-jitsu world who've done heinous things who've been accused of heinous things um and and, and again, getting back to this sort of overall theme that we seem to have going of um, discussion and how much of it happens and relative to how much of it should, um, this is the kind of thing where we need, to, we need to be willing to shine a light on the darker parts of our own art. Um, and so it was, it was a tough decision because I didn't want to believe that something like that could happen. But it wasn't a tough decision in terms of, in my mind, doing what I perceived to be the right thing, which was be honest about this and try to use this as a platform for even even a little bit illuminating a, a, an issue that that occurs in our in our world and 
doing a teeny tiny, taking a teeny tiny step toward maybe figuring out how to make it stop. I think that's really important, and uh, you know, and, and certainly, uh, you know, what a yeah, uh, the discussion theme. I think we keep returning to because it does continue to be to be super important. In the few minutes we have left, I, I do want to talk to you about the end of the book, which is you hadn't competed very much, and spoiler alert, you end up winning the worlds at Purple Belt, which uh, which is a tremendous achievement, you know, particularly at, at, at such an advanced belt. And I'm just wondering, what do you think, like broadly, what do you think competition did for you as a person and as a practitioner, and do you think everyone should compete at least once? Or is it the kind of thing where you can just train and enjoy jujitsu and, and competition doesn't doesn't have to be for everybody? Yeah, I, uh, I we, we talked about this earlier, how I couldn't have written a better story. So it's it's a good thing that I did win the Worlds of Purple Belt because it made, you know, it made a really great climax, right? So um, competition for me, I was, it again, it was another tool for me to use um, in, a, in the jujitsu context but focused on so I focused on on this concept in jujitsu, but it's something that I try to do in my in the rest of my life, which is if I'm afraid of something, I have to make myself do it. So as soon as I figured out that I was afraid of competing, I thought I need to figure out how to do this. So competition gave me that. It also gave me a different perspective on training, on on jujitsu itself. It gave me a complementary skill set because there's jujitsu skill and there's competition skill. And the two overlap, of course. But ask anybody who's competing for the first time and they'll say, oh, you know what? I like I just the adrenaline dump was enough to keep me from being able to, you know, attack my signature wrist lock or whatever. Um and so the skill, the, the skill building um, and the preparation for competition, I think all of those things are really important for character building. They're important for kind of gut checks. They're important for, um, they, they just, they change the nature of your training. They change the energy around your training. And as you say, not everybody is in it for competition, but I do encourage people to compete at least once to have that experience. And then when people ask me, you know, what should I be doing to compete or what, you know, what, when I compete, what's my, what's my goal as a first time or a, a relatively new competitor? And my answer is always, your goal is to experience competing. That's your goal. Your goal is to pay attention, to keep your eyes open, keep your ears open, check your gut, expl- make a point of remembering what you experience because that in itself is going to be really helpful to your game. So, I don't think that everybody needs to become a world champion, but there is something to be said for what it takes to prepare for, for experiencing what it takes to prepare for a competition, what it takes to actually step on that mat, which can seem huge and scary and imposing when you're when you're doing it for the first time. And and knowing that it's a safe way for you to, to push through maybe some some barriers that you have. Well, it's a testament to how interesting the book is that I have a list of like 10 questions that I wanted to get to, but I didn't. So we'd love to have you back in the studio another time. Uh, in the in the two minutes we have left, is there anything that I didn't ask about that you wish that I would have asked about or, or just a final thought you want to leave the listeners with? That's a really good question. Um, I, yeah, I, I just, I feel really fortunate to be able to um, share what I've experienced and to have it be meaningful to other people. Um I like to think that uh, um, we all have something to give back to whether it's the jujitsu world or whether it's another world that we choose to be in. And so I'm hoping that what I can give is maybe um, a way to articulate what it is that we feel and why we do what we do. Um, 
and hopefully some encouragement and cheerleading to people who might be, you know, feeling bad or, you know, having a rough day, all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I just, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and um, just, I'm grateful for being able to get up and train. As am I. And in that vein and in every other vein, the book succeeds admirably. The book is Training Wheels, How a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Road Trip Jump-Started My Search for a Fulfilling Life by Valerie Worthington. Val, thanks so much for taking the time today. You're welcome, and thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Folks, the book is available on Amazon. You can also get it at one of the events that Valerie is running in the Jiu-Jitsu community. We will post details on both to the Facebook page. We have some really exciting guests coming up in the next few weeks that I'm excited to get to. Uh, but in the meantime, go out, get this book, enjoy it, and as always, go train. Thanks for listening. This is the Cage Side Concussion Cast on WHUPFM.org. I'm Jeff Shaw, and we will see you next Sunday.